All right, everybody, welcome to the MXU video podcast. Um, I'm joined with my friends Zach and Rusty, and we are in episode 15. 15. 15. Made it to 15. Made it to 15. Guys, before I ask how you're doing, I got a confession to make. Um, I have the standing desk now, and um, I've been listening to a lot of Pat McAfee show uh, podcast stuff, and I feel like I am a new podcast host now. It's like unlock something within me. Anyway, I'm a little obsessed with Pat McAfee right now. I think he did an incredible job. Yeah, man, crush. A little bit, you know? It's like the way he starts his podcast, and well, it's a show now. It's really not a podcast, but yeah. The standing, the standing thing really helps. So anyway, uh, that's me. So if I'm coming at you with too much energy, I'm sorry. I'll, uh, I'll tone it down. But how are you guys doing? Good. Doing great. Been busy. I'm home for this week, so glad to be home. I'm so, I don't know. I mean, yeah, Jeremy, you live in Atlanta, so I know you, you can feel this. I'm assuming it's the same in Charlotte. But I am sick of this mild, wet winter. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. like affecting right. my mood. I need some sunshine. I need some warmer weather or I mean, snow. Like, make up your mind. That's yeah. true. The past two days here, it's been extremely nice to the point it was seventy degrees, and I had my office windows open with the nice outside air blowing in. But it's going to start raining today, so right. yeah, I'm with you though. Either be nice or give us some snow, but none of this rain. Yeah, yeah. I um, we had a uh, we have a creek on three sides of our property, and it um, flooded uh, for the second time in like 18 months and then i look back we had i'll get some i'll get this wrong but i feel like something around like the largest rainfall uh in history in january and it's my property is just i believe it soaked and my pond is overflowing and it's like all the annoying things about having land it's like well i'm ready for summer because i'm ready for it to dry out yep mm-hmm. it's about time um so this this episode will air uh sometime in february so if you uh listen to it just know that uh we try to be as relevant as we can but there's times where it's like podcast episodes just come out whenever they come out so uh that's as we talk about weather you're like okay cool you might be listening to it and it's bright and sunny and 80 degrees outside you know yep um just trying to be real here just trying to be real that's right that's right that's right uh rusty where where have you been lately you've been up to some some fun gigs um, so I had a little bit of time off in January after Passion Conference, which was great. And then I um, had a short, like a, a few days in St. Simon's Island for a quick show uh, with our good friend Jay Desai. Shout um, out hanging to Jay. out with Jay is always a good time. But uh, yeah, had a good show down there. Got to play a couple rounds of golf at Sea Island. So that was Ooh. fun for me. Uh, and then I went straight from there out to San Diego um, for Chick-fil-A's annual operator conference they call it next uh so that was that was how, really how good. Is, how do is they have Diego? a lot of chicken there never no chicken uh you never get to eat chick-fil-a at the chick-fil-a conference which i guess yeah. makes sense all the operators yeah. eat it every day so but yeah. i show up like you know wanting some yeah mm-hmm. um get it you got any chick-fil-a uh, secrets you can share i'm just kidding mm, i won't put you on the spot i do have some but i cannot share them there you go uh it's, it's always a good time and this time so i always try to pick a fun location um and oddly enough, they've had a little bit of bad luck here. So 2020, it was, we were on cruise ships, which was kind of crazy. We were on two different cruise ships and like mm-hmm. live linking back and forth. Uh, and that was 2020. So while we were on cruise ships, other cruise ships were getting docked for COVID. So that was kind of scary. Uh, and then we had a virtual one in 2021. Then last year in 2022, we went to Nashville. 
and it was like the coldest Nashville's ever been. A mm. uh, little bad stretch, and then we went to San Diego this year, and it was like 50 degrees and windy and a little bit of rain. So can't catch a break on the weather, um, but it's a it's a good time. It's a, it's getting pretty big. It's like I don't know 8,000 people at this conference. They invite all the operators and their spouses, oh, wow. and then they all all the everybody that works at the corporate office in Atlanta. Um, but it's a good few days of leadership development and um, just uh, some good content. A couple, couple of quick highlights. Have you guys, have you guys heard of the Savannah Bananas? Yes, no. absolutely. Oh, is it a minor league baseball team or some yeah, kind of yeah. sort of like ba- exposition baseball team yeah. in Savannah? The owner CEO guy talked, uh, gave a talk at the conference in a full head to toe yellow tuxedo. So let's talk about oh, how do you my. shoot a yellow tuxedo on scopes wow. and how do you make the camera look good? It was yeah. hot. <laughs> um, but he was, he was incredible, man. He was brought so much energy and fun. I really want to go to a Savannah Bananas game. Is it uh, in Savannah, Georgia? Yes. Okay. Yeah, but they travel. Like they're going to be in North Carolina at some point this spring. Yeah, they went on tour um, this year. But you can't but it's get, like t- they changed, it, can't get it's tickets. It's like semi-baseball. They changed the rules to make it more fun. And then it's just like people doing backflips in the outfield and all kinds of is it like stuff. baseball's version of Harlem Globetrotters? I mean, that was like that all might the be a rage. good way to think of it. I've never been to one, but I, I've never been. Like but it. I mean, yeah. when I was a kid, Harlem Globetrotters was like the thing to go yeah, see. Yeah. Um, um, interesting. That's cool. Look it up. I want to go to a show, but apparently, the season tickets are sold out for the next five years or something mm. like that. Like mm-hmm. It's wow, one of the hardest tickets to get. That's crazy. Um, uh, and then we also did a um, we did like an award night special show one night at the at Petco Park where the Padres play. Um, that was really cool. So loaded in a stage, like in the infield, and had a bunch of operators come to a, a night to honor a few people who were retiring at Chick-fil-A and uh, honor some of the operators who had had a you know, good business year. And then um, did a concert with for King & Country, oh, uh, which was really cool. So it was fun to, fun to get to work that, to work that show, be a little creative. What, what was one of your greatest challenges? Um maybe in the past couple of gigs that you've done? Um, it's a good question. Other than the yellow banana. Yellow banana was, was tough. Uh, I mean, like the Petco Park for King and Country thing was no rehearsal. So mm. um, it's, it's challenging, but I think, I think it's kind of fun to like, you step in with a plan, you kind of, you know the run of show on paper, you know where things are supposed to be, but you just kind of figure it out live and try to keep keep things calm, but keep things moving. Um, and keep people's you know urgency, so they can get the shots that we need to get. But yeah, it's probably one of the most challenging. Cool. I played Tory Pines. That was pretty cool. <laughs> I was like, sorry, I Zach. More golf else. talk. Right. Sorry. Zach's like, oh, I'm just going to dive back into Vectorworks here while we're recording because you're talking about golf. Right? <laughs> it would definitely crash. That's for sure. Yeah, Tory Pines. I mean, if people don't play golf, they it's it's um. It's a public course that number one public course in in the U.S. It's on the coast in La Jolla, California. Yeah, how was it? Uh, it was awesome. It was right after the PGA tournament had just gone through there, so the course was in pretty tough shape uh, as far as like conditions were tough. Um, but it's beautiful on the coast. I mean, beautiful scenery, cliffs, ocean, Pacific Ocean right there. Uh, there's navy and there's a bunch of like military stuff all around there. Mm. So constantly. Um, there's like fighter jets flying overhead, which is wild to see. There's helicopters flying out in the Pacific, dropping Marines off into the water, uh, just dropping them there to swim. And then they'll get the helicopter really low to chop all the water up 
and wow. they'll fly away and make them swim and then come back and get them and they'll climb the ladder out. Just wild stuff like that. That's cool. Um, Did you get good. paired up with anybody or were you just out by yeah, yourself? Yeah, it was me and the guy that was working Chick-fil-A and then we got paired up with two locals, which was super helpful. Ah. Um, but yeah, so the, the rough is so long and so thick that if you hit the ball in the rough, the local rule is you look for a minute. If you can't find it, you just get a free drop because literally you can't find balls until you step on it. Oh. <laughs> it's that, that thick. Free drop is nice. Free drop. That's great. Uh, cool. Well, that's exciting. I'm glad you were able to make that happen. Um, Zach, anything cool happening in your world other than like not playing golf and Vectorworks crashing? Apparently, that's what I see via Instagram. Yeah, I had a busy January. Um, I think I flew eight times in January alone already, which is a new thing to me. It was slammed, and and we. Just had to get a few things knocked out. Flew down to Houston and hung out with the Hope City crew for a weekend and saw their night of worship. And then I got a fun trip out to Vegas to hang out with Adam Taylor at Central. And um, him and Ryan out there needed some help with some video stuff at one of their remote locations. Pastor Judd's going to start preaching there some. So uh, Adam will be the first to admit he's not a video guy. Uh, So he had us come out. So me and... uh, John and Marcus flew out, took care of that stuff, and got to hang out with him. And uh, spent some time down at Christ Chapel. Uh, shout out to Rusty's camera crew from Passion. Uh, yeah, I think those awesome. guys helped you out down there. So it was that. And then last week, I actually flew to OKC to headquarters and went to a event called Fight Night, which is a charity event in OKC that Skylark sponsors a table or buys a table to sponsor the event every year. Um, got to go and hang out with that and be a part of that. So like Rusty, home this week, and then I think next week uh, we go to uh, go to Tulsa and then Dallas all in nice. one week. So, so yeah. what's the um, – you're you're not a Delta guy, right? You're like American or something? Is yeah. That a and I, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. All American. I mean, it actually costs more money to – and it's more of a pain for me to fly Delta. I know you guys are elite Delta guys, but for me yeah. to go anywhere in the country on Delta, I have to fly Charlotte to Atlanta. Right. Right. And then out. Um, and well, what's like the yeah. elite level? Like, you know, Delta has the, um, you know, diamond, medallion. diamond. Yeah. So what's, yeah. what's American's version of diamond? Cause that seems like ex- you're on it's that executive platinum. Oh, okay. Ooh. I've already Ooh. hit, I've already hit gold. And then the next level's platinum. There's four levels. I'm on the lowest right now, but whatever. I, I don't really care because yet. I know, but <laughs> the biggest thing for me is group boarding. I hate getting on the plane late and having to put my luggage behind me. That is my biggest pet peeve. Okay. The so seat you, are, upgrades you like to get on the plane ha- early? Yes. I would rather sit there and have my bag right above me than have my bag behind me and have to wait on other people to get off the plane. Yes, the seat upgrades are nice. I will say that, but... I just hate that. I just, just let me get on the plane. Let me sit down. And so that. Are we uh, talking like backpack or like a carry on? It depends board. on what I'm doing. I always have my back. It depends on the trip, but I'll, I'll 90% of the time, actually, I haven't flown without my backpack yet. But and you, so want, you don't a, want the backpack at your feet. You want it above you. Well, most of the time you have to because you can put one above and one below. But if I get on there early enough and put my suitcase up top, and then the bin fills up in quotes. And then once the plane's boarded, I just stand up and put my backpack up there because I'm an aisle guy. So I just stand up, find a spot, throw my backpack up there, mm-hmm. and I have 
you know, plenty of space. Learning things about you here, Zach. Uh, if if you don't if you don't travel a lot, uh, clearly, uh, Zach and Rusty and myself probably travel a lot, and you're probably like you you're probably thinking in your head, which I would have thought like good. You guys are like super bougie, bougie. Yeah. When you travel uh, every week and get on an airplane every week, you learn the things that um, you want to do. Ultimately, it's all about saving time, particularly on the mm-hmm. way home because you want to get to your yeah. family. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, hey, how can I get off this plane? even five or 10 minutes earlier. Um, you just so, find your comforts. I mean, yeah. if you work at your desk yeah, all day, for sure. you, you find right. things about your desk that make right. you yeah. comfortable, right? Yeah. Stand-up desk. Yeah. Stand-up you know, desk. Like That's that. right. That's right. Also, yeah. please don't guard the, the gate. Don't stand in front of the thing. <laughs> just, yes. just don't. Like, I even before I had a status where I could board early, I just sat in my seat because I hate people crowding it when they're standing. So in American, it's group one through group nine. And you can see people with like group eight and nine printed on the boarding pass. And they're literally right at the stanchion. And I'm like, right. What are you doing? You know how this works. You can count. Yeah. (laughs) I am ideally a, I will check any bag I can because I can do it for free. So even if I just have a carry-on size, my ideal is to check it, just walk on with my backpack, and get on as late as possible. And I can do that now too, but then I just don't like waiting on my bag. I just want to go when I get home. Yeah. But I'm with yeah. you because I can do a free one now, and I did that last week, and I was like, oh, it's nice not having to. But I'm also a stressor. and I'm an air tag in my luggage kind of guy because I'm like – Oh, Lord. I know. I don't know. I'm just like waiting on the day where I lose my luggage, and then I'm just mad and – I don't know. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of travel, one more topic that we should uh, throw out there and we should have a continued conversation about as we have more and more episodes. Um, April is NAB. Um, I don't know if anybody knows what NAB is, but it's the National Association of Broadcasters show in Las Vegas. Happens every year. It is the largest video-centric show in North America. Um, so wanted to put that on everybody's radar. If you're listening, you're obviously listening to the video podcast. You're like, okay, you're inter- somewhat interested in video stuff. Um, it's going to be exciting. I think this year we'll have even more vendors. And so, it's after Easter. Yes, this year. it is. Yeah. So April for everyone that's through. in a church listening, you don't have to worry about your Easter stress anymore. I always hated when it fell. Yes before easter and like to the point like there were one one or two years where i missed a rehearsal because it is important like i do feel like nab is very important for you to be able to go to um yep real quick like what i think for someone who's never been or someone who's you know wondering is it worth the cost Mm. well i'll give you a couple of reasons why you think it's important to go to for your average church td um man i have mine (laughs) I should probably write these down, but in no particular order, it's just, um, it's really important to make connections with people. And there is so many people at NAB. Um, and those connections will be with others that do stuff at churches and also manufacturers, um, and vendors. So just being able to make connections with people, it's a great place to drop in for a day or two, have some dinners, have some lunches, do the networking thing. Um, if that feels overwhelming for you, then just going booth by booth and learning the technology yeah. that everybody's, everybody's bringing their best new stuff. And, um, you know, these are like large booths, like 10,000 square feet booths of yeah. like technology where you can walk up and be like, Hey, how does this work? And what is this? And then somebody will like a demo person for that company will literally walk you through 
exactly all the and even if it's things. if it's a product that you're curious about like let's just I'll, I'll make it easy let's just say you walk into the ross booth and you want to see a product but you have no intentions of ever being able to buy it like they will still sit down yeah. or if there's a demo going on walk up to it see what uh see what they're doing um you know let your gears start to spin but I, yep. i'm with bagwell on that one it's such a huge networking thing like I could go and not even see any gear, but just to see. That was always one of my favorite things mm -hmm. at Elevation was I, I had a list of things I knew I wanted to go see, manufacturers I needed to go talk to, but it was more or less just connecting and seeing who all was there. And I met I have met so many people in person at NAB after having messaged with them for years and then finally make that connection. Yeah. I, I think it's a huge benefit. Yeah. So like when I was at North Point, we would, um, we were having a terrible time with our Teradex. And so we were like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to NAB and we're going to go see every single wireless video manufacturer, which NAB is massive. There's like four convention halls and we, me and Brendan Petty, um, managed of, I, we are fairly confident. We talked with every wireless video manufacturer and come to find out, most of everybody uses the same wireless video chip. Right. Manufacturers are different. They have different, all just different wrapping. Right. Yep. I'm like, oh, so that was really helpful. Like with that, you can't find necessarily that information on, online. Like it's hard to like get all that together. But as you went piece by piece, finally somebody's like, oh, we use such and such chip. And I was like, oh, so then I started asking every vendor like, hey, what, what wireless chip do you use? They're like, oh, we started going, oh, that's the same one as them. That's the same one as them. And it's like, oh, the common denominator here is this chip. So um, that's what's really fun. It can be, I mean, those Teradek devices are really inexpensive and a lot of people use them. So it's not always just the high-end equipment. It's also all the things we use from day-to-day. Uh, -day. And so right. asking people about their product helps you learn about the products and it's really exciting. I'm a pretty big fanboy yeah. of it. One, one little tip, if you are interested in going and you go to the NAB website and you see the ridiculous price to browse Correct. the exhibit hall do yep. not buy that yet mm -hmm. uh, all of the vendors every major vendor is going yep. to spam your social media feed with a free code and there are no strings attached to that Correct. they literally don't give a crap just wait on that and then register because yep. and then the only thing you have to pay for are your expenses to get there in your hotels correct yep so this is what's great about working for a manufacturer so we'll publish our code probably in the next week uh, and so by the time you hear this podcast, you can just go to the Ross worship or Ross video, uh, Instagram page. You'll see our code posted. You pop that code in, takes the price down to zero. You hit register. It's great. It's awesome. Um, a lot of people have fun with it. A lot of people like want to register with their code of their favorite manufacturer and things like that. So, you know, feel free to. So make Jeremy that. feel good. And yeah, I'll start to say, I'll I, make sure I, I put I, my I, Ross one in then. Yeah. <laughs> Are you going to be wearing a suit, Jeremy? Are you going to be wearing a suit this oh, year? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be wearing a suit. Cause, tie? Um, tie or no tie? Uh, I might wear a tie. I don't know. Okay. I'm on the fence. The, uh, we had a big party in November, a big company party, and I wore a suit and tie, and I was like, hmm, maybe I'll start doing this. We'll see. I'll, no, no. I'll surprise you guys, you know. I do have a question, Bagwell. Uh -oh. If you can't, then that's okay. We can just skip on past it. Will Ross have gear in the booth this that year? Oh, yeah. Ask that too. oh, yeah. We're going to have so much stuff 
y'all. It's massive. Did you get some feedback from last year. Yeah, just a little bit. No gear. Why did I even come by? I know. Kind of yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's massive. We're gonna have all the things. Uh, awesome. Our LED product is gonna be there, which is gonna be beautiful and incredible. Segway. That's so, uh huh. <laughs> I didn't even. That wasn't even intentional. Um. But yeah, LED product and all kinds of other things will be there. It's uh, full demos, stations. You'll be able to break things, play with things, get all your uh, questions answered. Um, it's be be great. So yeah, uh, get ahead of it and schedule some visits with your manufacturers, like for Ross or whoever else you want to visit. Because if you uh, you can book things, yes. and so then you know, like, oh, I'm gonna show up at the Ross booth at such 10 a.m. or whatever, and you know, so. Get ahead of it. And you if you don't know how to do that, not an integrator plug, but you know, if you don't know how to do that, you can reach out to your integrator if you've got yep. one. Um, yep. If if you don't have a manufacturer rep directly, you know, a lot of times you can just do that. But yeah, just reach out to your integrator if you've got some interest. And ninety percent of the time, they know who to reach out to to get a, a yep. product demo demos because the time slots. Is, are the best when you actually need to learn something because it is devoted for just you and a lot of right. times it's even in a separate area so yep. no one can yep. interrupt it yeah and i guess it is i was thinking like man it's february and like we're talking about something in april but it, it does it's really good to think ahead plan ahead obviously mm -hmm. get flights booked all that kind of stuff so uh if you guys have any questions about uh nab how to do it when to fly in all that kind of stuff uh direct message send a dm to me or Rusty or Zach, and we can uh, help guide you along uh, if you've yeah. never been there. And and we'd love to meet up with you when you're there. Um, so, Rusty, you mentioned Segway LED. So I'm going to let you uh, introduce our guest. I'm excited about listening. I wasn't there for the interview, but uh, I'm excited about it. Yeah, I mean, um, do you guys know from the title of this episode that we're talking all, all things Row LED? We had an awesome guest, Mike Smith from Row, come on in. I'll, I'll be honest. Uh, learned me some stuff about LED sure. and the future of LED for sure. So I think it's going to be helpful. Um, some of the stuff will probably be kind of advanced, but uh, it was for me certainly, but it's helpful to kind of know what where things are going because um, everybody and their mother has an LED wall now. So um, yeah, without further ado, let's go. Welcome in everyone. I'm excited about this conversation we're about to have uh, with our new friend, Mike Smith, the technical director for the U.S. office at Rowe Visual. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Rusty. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I think it might be good just to give uh, give all of us a little context of what does it mean to be, well, I guess, what does it mean to be the technical director at a, uh, at a company like Rowe? Um, so what, what does that entail? And I mean, a little quick version of who is Mike Smith and how did you get here? Sure. Um, so, I mean, as far as my role at Rowe, uh, I've been there for about three years now. Um, I started in the technical support department, moved on up to the uh, technical service manager position. And now at this point, I'm basically overseeing everybody in the technical side of our office. So that means I am looking over our repair staff, uh, our QC staff, and our technical support staff. So these are uh, all the crew members that basically set up demos, set up trade shows, provide technical support for our end users, and then our internal team that takes in any kind of repairs or um, demo returns, just any gear moving through our facility that needs to get rehabilitated. Um, we have probably about 15 to 16 people uh, amongst all those different groups that I just mentioned, and I kind of manage all of them. Uh, and then on cool. top of that, uh, I'm kind of taking the lead on curating the educational content that goes into our Row Academy class, the training course that we provide. 
um, and uh, design our trade show booths, implement our trade show booths, uh, do a lot of different things. But really, it's uh, all underneath the technical umbrella that uh, my responsibilities lie. Uh, so, I mean, that's me at Row. Um, but as far as my background, um, I mean, I have a strong live events background, um, basically coming straight out of my high school stage crew where I was doing lighting. Uh, I jumped into freelancing around the Los Angeles area. There's plenty of that kind of work here. and Just a I, little bit, I'm sure, yeah. Yeah, 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 right? <laughs> so I um, started out focusing on lighting primarily uh, and then kind of over the years got more and more into video and then as LED video specifically became so prevalent, um, I got heavily involved in that. Um, just prior to working for Row, I did about five or six years on the auto show touring circuit. So your major A shows for the auto show, uh, like uh, Los Angeles, New York, Detroit, and Chicago, I was building up LED walls in those trade show booths. And um, that took up about half of my year for, I mean, five or six years prior to working for Row. And that's kind of how I made some connections with the people at Row that uh, landed me there. Wow. Uh, so I think that's that's my story, professionally at least. That's cool. So high school theater, that's probably yeah. a pretty common um, story for a lot of us. I didn't yeah. get into it then. I wish, kind of wish I had. But Yeah, same. I, I didn't either. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely know a handful of people that that was uh, yeah, the genesis of their path. Right. You kind of mentioned um, that you kind of hinted at this, you know, the, the shift from, I guess, when, when LED became more common. And I, I think we all kind of have that experience over the last, you know, decade or so where there's this, I remember when LED walls first came out, they're, they're big, they're low res, they don't look at that great, and they're very expensive. Um, and so projection still made a lot of sense. But I think so much of, the, of our space now, even in church space, um, it's just, I guess LED has gotten so good, so high res, so lightweight, so and so inexpensive relative to where it used to be, mm-hmm. that it's um, it makes more sense than projection does in a lot of a lot of spaces these days. I mean, could you, could you speak a little bit about just kind of that shift and how I guess just why LED kind of makes more sense? This is one of my questions. Why does LED make more sense these days now that more than it used to, especially um, compared to projection? Well, I think you, you touched on a lot of the main points, just yeah, becoming more lightweight, um, more high res, I mean, brighter, cheaper. Uh, but one of the big things that I don't think you mentioned is just it's become more easy to use uh, for the That's end important. user. Yeah, 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 I think, I mean, it still is very complicated in a lot of situations. I think it's a lot more complicated than anybody realizes. But when you're talking about, um, yeah, an LED screen 10 years ago versus what you can go buy right now, the ease of use is uh, dramatically different. Not only just like the mechanical aspect for um, the crew actually physically handling the panels and getting it you know, set up and leveled and physically built, but then the actual configuration in the software. Uh, that end of things... Um, on the processor company side has just, you know, dramatically improved um, from the feature sets, but also really just like the UI and um, yeah, overall ease of use. Uh, so yeah, lots of advancements technically and on the electronics and becoming more high res and stuff. But I think, uh, yeah, the ease of use has really come a long way in the last you know decade, like you said. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't actually like Zach, maybe you could speak more to this. I don't, I've built a few LED walls back in when I used to tour more. Um, but like as far as setting them up with processors and stuff, I generally just like, hey, here's the SDI. And I've helped like, you know, build some rasters or whatever. But 
the whole ease of use thing, I think, is super important for a, for a big portion of our audience. Yeah, for I like agree. The church TV guy or gal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, My I mean, biggest I, concern. I, go ahead. Yeah. I came into it, you know, late enough in the game where the technology is probably where it is now. I mean, six years ago is probably the first time I truly messed with LED walls because I'm I'm not going to count the old school Martin LC panels or VersaTubes creative LED stuff. (laughs) So when when I came in to to it, you know, I feel like processing was already at a decent spot where it wasn't very complicated to set up, you know, let's just say a basic square or not square, but a basic rectangle wall. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to see what you have to say about that, Mike on like just for people that are just getting into it now, what it was, what it's come from as far as control side and, and, you know, how much more flexibility there is these days to do big complicated, uh, walls. I'm not necessarily even talking about, um, high raster or high pixel count walls. I'm just talking about, you know, the so many people now are going away from just a standard simple wall and breaking it up and how to map the image across that and, you know, being able to do it within the processor and not have to say fake it anymore. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, when I talk about ease of use, I'm not even talking about a complicated LED setup, like, you know, a stage with like, uh, non-standard shapes and many, many streams, uh, screens all over the place. Just talking about one kind of simple, say, 16 by 9 screen, a rectangle, mm-hmm. uh, that has become uh, much easier. So the modern processing platforms that we use today, um, I mean, there's uh, many of them out there, but what comes to mind and what I work with primarily is uh, Brompton or Megapixel, those are the two kind of high-end processing systems that our panels support. And they just have a great UI and a very easy to use, easy to set up. Then going kind of back in time, there's uh, Colorlight, Novastar, um, going back even further, DBStar, Linsyn, maybe some names you haven't heard of, uh, or maybe you have. And just the way that you used to set up these screens, almost none of it was graphical. You just had a piece of software that um, had a bunch of text boxes where you're expected to type in a bunch of numbers that correspond to pixel counts or, um, I mean, different values that are, were needed to configure like the LED IC drivers inside the the panels and, you know, some very technical stuff that realistically uh, some kind of engineer should have been figuring out and handing you these numbers. And if you type them in wrong, you're going to have a bad right. time. Mm-hmm. And wow. over the years, it's just gotten so much easier because basically, I mean, all that configuration stuff's happening in the background, but those numbers are provided to you in a file that you don't even know exists because the software is so clean. Uh, everything's a network device nowadays on, you know, basically a, a gigabit network um, and everything's talking back and forth and communicating, uh, sharing all this information to where the end user doesn't necessarily have to know all that nitty gritty information. And you just, uh, I mean, you see a square pop up on your software. That's your LED tile and you put it on your canvas where you want it uh, versus, you know, back, you know, a couple of years ago, it was much more complicated than that. Yeah, I can only imagine if you're, you know, a few years ago, you're a church, you get an LED wall, the integrator comes in and installs it and does all that stuff you just talked about. And then they leave and I'm the TD stressing out, like, hopefully mm-hmm. all that stuff just, you know, turns on right every week. I don't have yeah. to figure that out, but so much easier these days. That's one of my least favorite things, uh, the kind of fear that people have of touching this stuff. Um, like like you just said, like after it gets set up, um, 
I know not everybody has the knowledge, but nowadays things are easy enough and there's educational resources out there that I just don't want anybody to be scared to like turn their LED wall off and on again and not have faith that it's going to come back and, you know, operate correctly. Uh, I understand why people have that fear, but that's something I try to eliminate with people. I mean, it's just technology. You can master it. People can figure this stuff out. So true. Yeah, it's crazy to hear you say it that way because that that gives my greenness in the led world because the only thing i've ever known is taking a tile and dropping it where you need it to be and i I mean to obviously it's never been that easy based off what you said but like that's just so foreign to to not know anything other than that probably for so many people yeah no definitely um but i mean i think you should enjoy it that you haven't had to deal with it because yeah it's you're in a better place i think for sure (laughs) Why, why is, um, I have some ideas, but I want to hear from you. Like what, what makes LED better than projection? Now, obviously some use cases, projection might still be better, but in general case for a church CD who, um, or say a pastor comes to their, to the staff and says, Hey, I want to, and I was at this other conference and they had an LED wall or they had this big, bright video screen behind the stage, you know, and they don't even know what it's called. And so they start getting the, uh, people looking into, you know, what would it take for us to get an LED wall? I think it might be helpful just to talk through a little bit, you know, what are some benefits over projection? And then let's say you are going down that path of, you know, looking at options for an LED wall. What, what questions should they even ask? What do they need to consider? What are the specs that they need to know to ask about? Sure. Um, so, I mean, what makes it different from projecting, projection, projection, you kind of already touched on it. Brightness is like one of the big things that comes to mind immediately. Um, I mean, you can just have a nice, you know, big, bright LED wall, uh, probably much brighter than most projection screens that are available. Um, so that's, you know, one key aspect. Uh, depending on the space that you want your video surface in, maybe you don't have uh, a second position where you can put a front projection screen or a rear projection screen, like the actual footprint of the LED wall. I mean, it's kind of similar to the actual projection screen itself, but you don't have that second element of the projector. Um, So just just from like a physical space standpoint, uh, it's a little bit uh, easier to work with that way. Um, longevity wise, I think that the LED wall can go a little bit longer without being uh, serviced necessarily, whereas you're going to have to switch out your lamp on your projector most likely. Um, those are some of the things that come to mind immediately. Um, and I think uh, something else, I guess, just, just flexibility, depending on, I mean, how permanent of an installation you're going for, or if you're just a rental house, uh, I mean, LED panels are very modular, so it's a very flexible system. You don't always need the same 16 by 9 screen. You can split it up into a couple iMag screens or, you know, get creative with shapes on stage, stuff like that, that just isn't necessarily possible uh, with, uh, you know, a projection surface that's kind of stuck being whatever it is. Yeah, um, and pair that along with what you just said about sorry, like what you just said about how the ease of use now, just because the installer sets the wall up one way, does not mean it has to be that way forever. You have tons yeah. of flexibility. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in most cases, I mean, a lot of our products are just geared toward the rental market, and they are designed to be taken apart and put back together again. Right. So yeah, that's I mean, part of yeah the mission of the tile is to be able to be used in that in context. Um, but then you also asked about, I mean, what kind of tech specs you're going to want to be looking out for yeah, um, and what people need to be paying attention to. 
it's a, I mean, there's a lot to an LED tile. So, I mean, number one that I think of is like, are you using it indoor or outdoor? That's kind of like the first division in our product lines. Um, and when I say indoor or outdoor, usually that is mostly related to whether or not it's uh, waterproof or IP65 rated. So it can be used um, in, in outdoor situa situations where you might get a little rain or a lot of rain. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then along with that comes uh, a lot of safety information regarding wind loading. Um, a lot of the indoor tiles aren't meant to be used outside where the wind's blowing. So that's another big differentiation between indoor and outdoor. But then say you go, I mean, indoor or outdoor, that's your first split. And then you start thinking about uh, what pixel pitch you're going to want to use. And the pixel pitch, so if you mean? don't, yeah, yeah pixel pitch, ahead. it's the um, distance center to center between the two adjacent LEDs on your panel. So you'll uh, hear people describe LED tiles as like a three mil or a four mil, an eight mil. That distance they're talking about is the distance between LEDs. And so um, your, your outdoor tiles generally are a larger pixel pitch or lower resolution. And then indoor, it's a little bit more high res typically. And that's all based off of the viewing distance and where your intended audience is going to be in relation to the LED wall. So if they're going to be up closer, you're going to want more high resolution, get those pixels closer together versus if you're doing like an outdoor concert. Um, and your audience is going to be hundreds of feet away, you can go with like a, you know, five, eight, 18 mil, even in some situations, just the low right. res works out for that. Um, so that's kind of the resolution thing. Uh, uh, again, something I didn't mention is the brightness um, uh, for the split of outdoor versus indoor products. In general, the outdoor products are going to be much brighter than the indoor, but that's because you're competing against the sun in most kind of daylight situations. So again, something to consider is brightness. And then, I mean, those are kind of the basic things. Uh, from there, then I want to start asking about what your actual target audience is. Is it a human being or is it a camera or is it both? Because that's a whole new set of um, kind of divisions in our product lines that are geared towards specific applications. Um, cameras pick up a lot of things that the human eye doesn't. So we have a whole line of products geared towards broadcast and now film and TV that have higher performance um, that basically work towards eliminating unwanted artifacts that you see on screen, namely uh, scan lines and flickering, things of that nature. That's really interesting because I think a lot of our, a lot of people, especially in churches that I see, like there's a lot of LED walls as the scenic backdrop which then mm -hmm. means it is the background of the camera shot. Yep. So is, there, is it more than just, this is an educational for me, so is it more than just um, the pitch, like the pixel pitch? Because I know where I see more and things like that is, you know, there's a certain, if I can't get the background soft enough and the pixels are too far apart, then I start to see that banding and more, but there's more stuff than there's that. There's ways to get rid of flicker. I see that question asked to me all the time. Hey, my walls are flickering on camera. What mm -hmm. do I do? Yeah, um, this is uh, something I would love for the whole world to understand. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a bit complicated. But so number one, more that you're just talking about, that's basically just the effect of the grid of LEDs that you're shooting on camera interacting with the grid of photoreceptors on the camera's sensor in basically an unwanted way. It's very similar to like shooting somebody on stage that has like a plaid shirt and you see kind right. of a funny um, pattern up here. Uh, and yeah, right now, I mean, there's some kind of software filters and actual like hardware filters in cameras that are working towards eliminating that. 
on the LED wall side of things, we're kind of stuck with a grid of pixels. And right. so far, there hasn't been any um, like sea changes in the way that we're going to do things. And it's just like a, a physics problem. At some point in the focal plane, you're going to run into Moray with the current state of cameras and LED walls. Yep. So yeah, the, get the way that you get a away from it is, yeah, increasing the resolution of your wall will help, but it doesn't uh, completely eliminate the problem. There's still going to be a point where you get that Moray effect happening. And so, yeah, we generally tell people, get your your talent you know i mean a few feet downstage of your led wall and find a position where you can you know focus on them and not the led wall uh and yeah so there's no magic button to click in the software that makes the moray go away there isn't one on the camera yet um so yeah that's just a kind of like a physics problem and deals with um needing to do some pre-production planning out your stage and figuring right. out where you need to focus on but then all this flickering stuff that I'm talking about and uh, scan lines, uh, like when I say scan lines, I mean you're shooting an LED wall and you see like dark and light lines kind of rolling through the picture. Um, all that is is kind of a mismatch in timing between the shutter on the camera opening and capturing light and how many refreshes of the LED screen you see. Because uh, I don't think a lot of people realize exactly how an LED wall works, but um, those LEDs that are on, they're not on statically. They're blinking on and off thousands of times per second. And that's a, a specification called the refresh rate. Um, if you see something listed as like a 1920 hertz or 3840 hertz LED screen, that means, for example, with 3840, uh, every LED is turning off 3840 times per second. Uh, so lots and lots of blinking and it doesn't all happen at the same time. There's another spec called scan rate or scan ratio or multiplexing ratio. And what that has to do with is basically how the groups of LEDs are grouped together, like what number of LEDs uh, go through that refresh cycle. So uh, a very common scan ratio is 16 to one. And that means that you start with LED number one, it turns on and off, then number two, then number three in a cycle one through 16, then it starts over at number one again. So, and this can happen in horizontal rows or vertical columns, depending on the product. Um, that's just how the PCB is laid out. But the, um, the gist of it is that you get these kind of lines refreshing one at a time through groups of, you know, varying numbers, depending on the product. And if that happens an uneven amount of times for one frame of video being captured in your camera, some of those LEDs are going to appear brighter than others. So the goal would always be to have a perfectly even number of refreshes across your entire screen for every frame of video captured on the camera. But that's not always the case. Number one, because most people aren't aware of this. Uh, number two, even if they are aware, that's not the primary thing they're trying to tune the system for. Uh, and then number three, either the LED product or the processors or the cameras didn't have the ability to tune for this kind of stuff, which at this point, that is no longer the case. There's, um, I mean, from the LED manufacturer's standpoint, we are basically um, driving towards reducing that scan ratio and increasing the refresh rate as much, much as possible. Not because it completely eliminates the problem, but it kind of sets up the end user for the best success possible with the, the equipment that they have. 
But then the LED processing companies are doing a ton of heavy lifting on their end as far as implementing features that basically allow you to type in what frame rate you're shooting at and what your shutter angle is. And it adjusts the refresh rate of our LED panels dynamically to even all those things out um, in the effort of eliminating those scan lines. What software is that? Is that that's in the processor, you said? Correct. Yeah, yeah. A lot of what, I mean, it, we have like a very close relationship with our processing companies and like the technology itself is like very, very closely related. Um, and a lot of the control of our actual LED panels obviously is done by the processors. Right. Um, but yeah, these features that I'm talking about, they're just part of the interface of the same software you're using with like Brompton, for instance, where you're uh, mapping out your LED tiles to get the video on the screen. There's a little tab um, called camera nowadays, and you just type in these settings and it, um, I mean, does a lot of math in the background and figures out how to utilize our LED tiles correctly for your camera settings that you're being, uh, that are being used. That's very cool. Do you know that, Zach? That's, I, did yeah. that. <laughs> I did not know that. that that's very cool. Does yeah. adding Genlock, if I, if I Genlock my cameras and my processor together, does that help? So that's a great question. And it, like to a degree, yes. Um, because what Genlock does, I mean, it's basically sending a timing pulse to your whole video system and it's getting your LED panels or well, the whole screen overall to start drawing its first frame of video at the same time that your cameras are taking in their first frame of video. So that starting at the same time is great. But if the amount of refreshes that are happening on the panel is uneven, yeah. it'll be in sync but it won't but you you still might see some scan lines and like i mean you've probably actually seen this like the scan lines that i'm talking about being brighter and darker lines if they're rolling through the image then it's probably not genlocked if you genlock it mm -hmm. those just stop but they're just still static. there yeah. they're just static yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. so genlock i mean you should definitely be using genlock but that doesn't completely eliminate the problem that's good to know that, that's that's a lot of helpful information right there yeah for real yeah no happy to share it and like a lot of this stuff, I mean, has been driven due to uh, the use of the LED panels now on film and TV sets mm -hmm. where this stuff is like hypercritical, uh, where it's completely unacceptable to have these sorts of scanline artifacts. Um, so like XR and AR, like that, those kind of. Correct. Yeah, they have virtual yeah. production and all that. Um, but it's nice because of the advancements being pushed through by that kind of vertical. Those can be used in the live events industry because we're still using cameras on the screens. Um, so yeah, why not utilize those features? Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm excited to see that somewhere. Um, are there certain processors? I think you said you guys have close relationships because you guys, you guys don't make processors, right? You use third parties. Correct. Are there ones that you feel like you know, are better than others or I'm not, not saying necessarily dog better, anyone, but, but like what yeah. can you weigh out some options for us? Cause I mean, put my integrator hat on for a second. Brompton is more expensive, but based off some things that you've said here, you're paying for what you get. I think that'd probably be a good point to dive into, um, on, on weighing out options that you do and don't get. And I'm not asking you to say a preferable processor, just, but just a high level of the, the why behind, you know, features that you get or don't get. Yeah, sure. So yeah, we, we try to stay, you know, pretty platform agnostic uh, at Row. We do work with multiple companies and there's definitely varying levels of feature sets uh, that fit for, you know, different applications and different budgets. And that's all something that has to be considered when you're yeah, laying out a job for the first time. 
or deciding on what gear you want to rent. Um, but like on the higher end and the higher level of feature sets, it's definitely Brompton and Megapixel at the moment. Um, Brompton, they've been around quite a while. They're, I mean, fairly familiar name to a lot of people uh, that work on LED. But uh, Megapixel or MVR, uh, the full name is Megapixel Visual Reality. Um, that might be l less common or not known as much, especially in the live events world. Um, but they're uh, a slightly newer processing company, um, but they provide a, a very high-end set of features as well, um, very comparable to Brompton. Um, and then two more uh, processing platforms that we utilize are Colorlight and Novastar. Um, both of those have been around for uh, a lot longer, but, and I mean, I think they're more ubiquitous uh, throughout the entire world. Um, but they have uh, just, I mean, a different set of features, um, slightly less uh, flexibility when it comes to this on-camera work, slightly less um, color adjustment ability. Um, but yeah, it's kind of like a you get what you pay for thing. And they are definitely more affordable on the, the Novastar and color light end compared to Brompton and uh, Megapixel. Uh, but it, it, like, I mean, if you have the budget for it and if your client is after a specific level of reliability, redundancy and feature sets, um, then maybe Megapixel or MVR is the way that you're going to go. Um, I was, I just got off of a, a, a passion conference. And um, one of the things that we were looking at was latency. And there's always going to be some latency involved, right? With capturing something in camera, sending it through a video truck, hitting LED process. Well, we were hitting some media servers and then hitting the LED processor to go to the wall. Um, but I just wonder, like, what, you know, is there any kind of understood standard? There's going to be a certain amount of latency. What is that amount of latency um, when we're talking about LED walls? And are some processors better than others, or is it pretty much? you know, standardized? Uh, yeah, no, great question. And yeah, very great point. Latency is definitely a, a concern you should have uh, depending on, I mean, what your actual use case is. Like we see some people, yeah, maybe it's just like an iMag screen um, that's replaying somebody, you know, on stage, but it, it, it is a little funny when things are delayed uh, a couple frames here and there. Um, but then it becomes way more important uh, when maybe you're doing some kind of interactive installation where somebody touches something and they expect it to happen, uh, some reaction to happen immediately on screen. That's when latency uh, is very, very noticeable. But um, from the LED manufacturer's standpoint, uh, there's always going to be one frame of delay. Uh, so when I talk about latency, I'm not talking about in seconds or minutes like that. We talk about it in frames of video. It's all based on the frame rate that you're running at. Um, so there's always one frame of delay, and that's just due to the buffers in our um, LED panels. They have to take in some information, store it for a frame, and then display it. Uh, so, and that's always going to be there. Uh, as far as I know, that's never going to go away until we right. figure out a new way to do LED panels. Uh, but then on the processor side, yeah, there's uh, depending on the processing system, it's another two to three frames of delay in general. And um, those higher end processors that I mentioned have options for varying levels of low latency modes. And they can basically trade off a little bit of their processing power, maybe turn off a couple features that you were using or wanted to use. Um, you have to give those up in order to eliminate one frame of delay. And then maybe you can reduce your uh, overall canvas size a little bit more and uh, reduce it even further. Um, I believe both, uh, pardon me, both Megapixel and 
Brompton, they have a, a mode that you can basically get down to zero frames of delay in the processor itself, uh, and you're only dealing with that single frame on the LED side. Mm-hmm. But you're you're giving up. Um, just a lot of the yeah. features at that point, um, which I mean is a totally valid option if that's your primary goal. Um, but yeah, you just need to be aware of the uh, the trade offs there. That's yeah, it's good to know. You're kind of you got to choose what your priority is there. Yep, absolutely. I think I was wanted to go back real quick to pixel pitch, and I know mm-hmm. it's impossible. People say people ask me sometimes, well, what kind of wall should I get? Well, I have no idea. I've never been to your building. I don't know how far away people are. I don't know. Tons of variables that you would need to know, but I do th- I do wonder if we could give some sort of general advice about, like when you're in an indoor auditorium that can seat a thousand people, like what are some, you know, what are some guardrails? You, you don't you don't want a twelve, uh, you don't want a twelve millimeter pitch. That's going to be incredibly low res, right? But you also don't need a one mil wall. So what totally. are some like rough guidelines maybe people can start with? Yeah, the rule of thumb is like one meter of distance from the wall per millimeter of pixel pitch. So yeah, I think like three feet for a one mil wall, six feet for a two mil wall, and so on from there. Um, that's the general rule of thumb. Um, there's also some uh, SMPTE standards based on viewing screens. I think it's all cinema based, but that's another one that we go off and uh, go off of, and that has more to do with the um, the size of the overall screen compared to the distance that you're going to be viewing at it, not necessarily the pixel pitch, but that's another consideration that's also kind of tied into this conversation. Um, but yeah, in general, we, we tell people um, one meter per millimeter of pixel pitch, and um, yeah, and I mean, when I say that, that's for humans, uh, for for your eyeballs. And it's actually interesting. There's, um, uh, I've read some papers uh, that are all based on um, VR goggle kind of technology and mm-hmm. all the people building the screens in those, figuring out exactly how many pixels the human eye can define at, you know, specific distances. And uh, you can kind of extrapolate that information because at some point your eye can't define the difference between two pixels, it, um, you know, just kind of becomes one point of light to you because uh, just due to the kind of limitations of like the resolution of our actual eyes, if you can think of it mm-hmm. that way. Um, so there are, um, I mean, definable limitations when it comes to this. And uh, yeah, they're out there. I don't think that uh, we ourselves, um, Roe, have any kind of white papers or anything written on this. Uh, but yeah, in general, uh, one meter per millimeter of pixel pitch. Um, and then when it comes to anything on camera, it's going to be uh, a little bit more complicated to answer that question because of the different like lensing and camera sensor size and the placement of the camera. It, there's a lot more variables at play. So when it comes to that, we just tell people to do a lot of testing. Um, but like, I mean, in general, uh, you're not focusing directly on the wall anyway, so you're always going to have it kind of soft-focused and um, it, things blur out a little bit anyway, so you can get away with um, a higher res, or pardon me, a, a higher pixel pitch, lower res screen in those situations. But yeah, something to, I mean, keep in mind is that it is different depending on whether or not you're just uh, dealing with people in the audience versus a camera. Mm-hmm. That's cool. I think one just final question that I had is just like, you've been in it for long enough. We're, where do you see LED wall technology headed? You know, in the video world, so many things have, the thing is moving to 2110 for video. Where, where do you foresee the LED wall going? Sure. That's uh, a great question. Um, same as what you just mentioned. I mean, we're starting to see a lot of the 
media servers and LED processors that are used directly with our LED panels uh, start to switch over to the SMPTE 2110 standard. Um, so yeah, like, I, and I know that this is a little bit removed, at least one step from our actual panels, but yeah, all the video is going to just be IP based in the not too distant future, uh, which is, it's really cool because uh, I mean, not just from like an infrastructure standpoint or kind of standardization as far as you don't need to, you know, deal with like HDMI or SDI or DVI or DisplayPort or whatever. It's all just going to be over IP. Um, I think that there's, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) but I think that there will be. Um, some just kind of interesting advancements that aren't immediately recognizable just by the nature of being able to use IP-based video, um, specifically within the LED processors. Um, Nothing I can like speak to directly, but uh, it's just changing the way that they're transporting the video in a way that um, new things are going to be able to happen. Um, That's cool. But then like from the processors onto the actual LED panels, I mean, for now, it's still going to be like a fairly standard network. Um, we didn't talk about this, but the, the different there's different protocols that are spoken between our panels and the uh, processing company's processors, and it's dependent on which type of processor you have. Uh, they're all a little bit different, but it is all network-based. And um, for the most part, it's going over potentially a a 10 gigabit fiber uh, network out to a switch that then breaks it down to one gig or now in some cases two and a half gig uh, network links between the actual panels. And that's all driven by how many pixels are on a specific panel. The really, really high res like sub one mil stuff that we're getting into is um, starting to lean towards two and a half gig uh, connections, not just a standard one gig connection in between Mm -hmm. panels. Uh, So that's happening. Um, And then, I mean... From the LED technology standpoint, I mean, we're always just trying to make, I mean, panels brighter, make them take uh, less power, put out less heat, become more serviceable. Uh, But then I think we're also designing more products that are very application specific. And again, a lot of this is geared towards kind of like the virtual production XR, AR sort of world. But we're finding that... um, there's a lot of specific needs in that space when it comes to you know capturing LED on uh, camera and using LED as a light source, uh, which you know historically it wasn't, and that's forcing us to innovate in what type of LED packages we use, what kind of like anti-reflective coatings we're putting on our LED panels. Um, the the way that we actually design the mechanical and physical frame uh, so that they're uh, basically easy to remove out of the center of a screen if you need to hang a light there, Mm -hmm. things like that that we didn't really need to do before. Uh, And then, I mean, one last thing that's like super popular right now or becoming more and more popular is um, uh, just this kind of uh, idea of interleaving multiple frames of video live on a screen that can be tuned to different cameras. And that's like a a real long way of uh, trying to not... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, look up either uh, Multi-Frame Display by Brompton or Ghost Frame by Megapixel. I have to mention this stuff because it's one of the most exciting things being done with LED technology right now. And basically what it is, imagine you have two cameras pointed at a single LED screen and one camera sees one set of video, the second screen, or sorry, the second camera sees a totally different feed of video that's all happening live. And this is just based on all that stuff I was talking about with refresh rate and scan lines and the timing of the video. Because this stuff is happening so quickly, 
you can actually display multiple video feeds on an LED wall and then parse that out uh, just based on the timing of your cameras. And then you can start doing really fun stuff like hiding specific video feeds from the in-person audience, but allowing that stuff to be captured on camera or vice versa. Um, the way that this is used, I mean, traditionally where this technology came from is like, think about like a football game and, or, you know, whatever, a sports game, you have LEDs surrounding the field and you sell one ad for one company yeah. to one of the broadcasters and you sell a totally different ad to a different broadcaster. And then maybe the in-person audience sees something else on top of all of that. That technology is now being utilized in live events and virtual production with our LED screens. Um, and that's uh, arguably one of the most interesting use cases I've seen for LED walls at this point. So that's a, a real cool advancement. Wow. That's cool. I can't wait to see some of the creative applications of that. Yeah. I mean, I got to go. So I'm going to go YouTube some stuff right now because that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, no, <laughs> definitely. And yeah, what's neat is like, yeah, we're figuring out that our hardware is able to do all this stuff, but now it's going to actually get out there in the hands of the creative, you know, smart people out there. And they're going to figure right. out ways to do interesting things with this that nobody would have anticipated. So that's very exciting. That's cool, man. Mike, that's, this has been a very enlightening conversation. I think, uh, I think I probably speak for a lot of us that we're going to be rewinding this to uh, yeah. get some of that information to, to really set in because that was super helpful. For yeah. sure. Yeah. I'm happy to, you know, spread some information. I think, yeah, just in general, there's a lot to LED. It's like, I don't want to shy away from it. I know it, I, I talked about it becoming more easy to use, but it's a complicated subject. Like when I came from the lighting world, like I knew DMX and that was like the hardest thing I felt like I had to know outside of like kind of lighting design theory and where the lights needed to go. But when I got into video, just it's a whole new world and LED specifically, I mean, this is like some high-tech stuff that you're dealing with that you might not realize. Uh, and it has some pretty cool capabilities. So yeah, I'm happy to share the information. I'm all about education. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Mike, man, that was super great. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, thanks to Roe for all the help with MXU and um, just for, yeah, the education for, for me personally and for our audience. So um, yeah, I think we're... Um, I think we've got a lot to go digest, Zach. Yeah, Hope for you can sure. Some of that stuff. I mean, I'm <laughs> definitely going to play this one back myself. That that was that's great. That's real good. Thanks for all this, Mike. Yeah, good yeah. to meet you, Mike. Thank you, man. Yeah, like talk to you soon, Thank you, Rusty. Thank you, Zach. Yep, absolutely. See you guys. See ya. If you've seen or heard anything from MXU, you've probably gathered that we care deeply about helping you create healthy teams. We know that you have a lot on your shoulders, but you don't have to bear it all alone. MXU can come alongside you to help you recruit volunteers and bring them on board in a healthy way. With our platforms, you gain back valuable ministry time as we take over the bulk of training from entry level to advanced concepts in audio, video, and lighting. Keeping your team healthy should be a priority at any church, and a healthier team means a healthier you. Start building a healthy team at getmxu.com.